0: Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Ronit Malka, and today we'll be discussing mid-face fractures, specifically Lafort and Zygomatic maxillary fractures, with facial plastic and reconstructive surgeon Dr. Scott Bevins. Welcome back, Dr. Bevins.
1: Hi, Ronit. Thanks for having me again.
0: So since relevant mid-facial anatomy is so critical to understanding patient presentation, we're going to deviate from the usual outline a bit and discuss this first. Could you briefly review the normal facial skeletal structures that are typically involved in LaFort and ZMC fractures?
1: So, of course, they say a picture is worth a thousand words, right? So I guess that means we're going to be using a thousand words to talk about this. But if you have the chance, um, I'd recommend just pulling one up on a computer because the, the picture is really helpful. So what we'll do is just talk through, if you can imagine, a picture of a skull. And the picture I have in my mind has all the little colored bones that are labeled. So the maxilla, which is the most inferior bone, holds all the teeth. That's obvious, right? What we tend to forget is that it extends medially. It extends all the way up to the medial orbital wall. So it articulates with the nasal bones and the frontal bone there. Um, And then posteriorly inside the orbit, it articulates with the lacrimal bone, where the lacrimal um, sac sits. Laterally, the maxilla articulates with that zygomatic bone. And that articulation actually occurs relatively high and lateral, almost in the middle of that malar eminence. So that leads us to the zygoma. The zygoma is the bone that's providing the anterior projection and the lateral width of the face. Superiorly, it articulates with the frontal bone, and we call that suture the zygomaticofrontal suture, or ZF suture. If we follow the zygomatic arch around laterally, it's gonna meet with the temporal bone and that articulation, of course, we call the zygomatico-temporal suture. If we look at the deep surface of the zygoma along the skull base and in the posterior aspect of the orbit, it articulates with the sphenoid bone and we call that, of course, the zygomatico-sphenoid suture or ZS suture. So aside from seeing that ZS suture, you know, intraorbitally or during sinus surgery, we don't actually often externally see the sphenoid bone except in drawings and CT scans. But if you pull one up, actually, I pulled one up last night and my daughters are looking at it and they're like, oh, it looks like a butterfly, dad. It's got all these wings and, and holes. And in fact, almost everything on the sphenoid is labeled a wing. And I'll explain that. You know, you got the lesser wing superiorly and the greater wing. The greater wing is what makes up the most of the skull base. And it has all the holes that, well, we know those holes, right? The foramen ovale and the foramen rotundum. Inferiorly, there are these two smaller wings. And if you remember back to the Greek, you know, a pterodactyl, that PT prefix, right? That's Greek for wing. And so those two small wings are actually the pterygoid plates, the medial lateral pterygoid plates. The sphenoid itself houses a whole bunch of important structures. And in the region of those pterygoid plates, it articulates back with the maxilla to kind of create this closed circle. And and in between all of those articulations are, in most cases, medially air-containing spaces, which kind of creates what effectively becomes a crush zone in the central portion of the face when it comes down to facial trauma. So again, those sutures that are in play are the zygomatico frontal suture, the zygomatico sphenoid suture, the zygomatico temporal suture, and the zygomatico maxillary suture. Now those sutures actually are not where all mid-face fractures occur though. And I think we'll talk through that more in a little bit.
0: Great. Oftentimes, and a lot of these fractures are involving the orbit as well. Can you speak to a little bit of that?
1: Yeah, and so we've kind of marched around the orbital, what I'd call exoskeleton, right? But if we look at the internal portion of the orbit, you know, the frontal bone creates the superior orbital rim, and then extends along posteriorly to create the orbital roof. You know, immediately we've talked about this, right? That frontal bar meets the maxilla, and as we march posteriorly along the medial orbital wall. We've got that small lacrimal bone and then the thin ethmoid bone that is behind it leading back to the optic foramen. Along the floor of the orbit, most of that is actually the orbital surface of the maxilla. And then in the very back, you've got this crest of palatine bone. Again, we don't see much of this palatine bone, but the palatine bone is useful because it tends to be really hard and it creates that nice ledge that we want to rest a plate on. And then in the very back of the orbit, the posterior aspect of the orbit is actually that sphenoid bone, which we talked about before. Now we've talked through all seven of the bones that comprise the orbital cavity. And I think when you think through them this way, it's much less intimidating to try and remember them.
0: Got it. Thank you so much. So we also hear a lot about facial buttresses and their involvement in directing fracture patterns and facial trauma. Could we go over what these different buttresses are and how they relate to normal anatomy?
1: Yeah, and so a lot of times when we talk about these, we'll separate them into vertical buttresses and horizontal bars, right? And so the vertical buttresses are essentially transmitting the force of mastication all the way up to the skull base, helping preserve that midfacial crush zone. So the nasal maxillary buttress extends from the maxilla, right, essentially where the canines are, superiorly all the way up to that frontal bone. It's a little curvilinear line, it goes around the lateral aspect of the piriform aperture. This tends to be the strongest vertical buttress in the face. As we go laterally now, there's a parallel buttress that starts about the region of the premolars or molars and extends vertically from the maxilla up to the zygoma. And so we call that the zygomatico-maxillary buttress. And then if you look at the posterior surface of the maxilla, and this is where the force transmitted from the third molars is, that's the tergomaxillary buttress, right? So the nasomaxillary buttress, the zygomatico-maxillary buttress, and then the tergomaxillary buttress. You know, some people consider the septum and its articulation with the vomer, an unpaired central buttress. Others talk about the ramus and condyle unit as being another vertical buttress. So now we're gonna transition to horizontal bars, right? Horizontal bars are what establish the midface width and projection. Superiorly, you've got that frontal bar created by the frontal bones, the superorbital bar. The infraorbital bar is actually almost continuous with the zygomatic arch. And so you may hear people refer to them as the infraorbital bar or the zygomatic bar. Because it tends to wrap all the way around that zygomatic arch from a functional standpoint. And then the maxillary alveolus is the hard palate, and that's the third midface horizontal bar.
0: So I know you've touched on it a little bit already, but keeping in mind that framework that we've just discussed, how does normal facial skeletal structure impact functional outcomes?
1: That's a critical thing, and particularly when we think about our surgical approach to reducing and fixating midface fractures we really want to be focused as much or more on the functional components. And anytime there's a fracture that involves the orbital walls, we have the potential to increase or decrease the orbital volume, right? That can create hyper or hypoglobus, globe malposition is how we generally refer to that, which can have other functional effects, diplopia and so on. The other big factor at play here is occlusion. Anytime there's a maxillary fracture, we have the potential to create malocclusion. And then we can also have a lateral midfacial fracture, and I'm talking really about zygomatic arch fractures or ZMOC fractures that can then impinge on the muscles of mastication. And we didn't spend much time talking about those, but remember that underneath the zygomatic arch, you've got the temporalis muscle that connects down to the coronoid. So if you have significant indentation of that zygomatic arch, it doesn't seem like it would have a functional effect, but in fact, it may actually impinge on the temporalis muscle or restrict the motion of the coronoid causing um, trismus. So those are significant functional aspects of our surgical endeavors.
0: Great. So now that we've reviewed normal facial structure, could you discuss the different types of disruptions we see with LaFort and zygomatic fractures?
1: Yeah. And maybe I'll start by talking about zygomatico maxillary fractures because they're far more common. There's some regional variation, but most midface trauma now is from motor vehicle accidents followed by what some people describe as disorderly conduct. And then there's this category of other injuries, sports accidents, et cetera. And generally when we see a threat coming, we'll turn our head to protect ourselves. And so you can guess that most of the midface trauma actually occurs to the lateral facial structures. So we talk a lot about ZMC fractures or ZMOC fractures. And these used to be described as tripod fractures. Now we kind of understand that based on the fracture patterns, not so much the suture, but the fracture patterns, they include four locations. And so we call them tetrapod fractures now. That's the reason why they used to be called tripod fractures is because when you pull the zygoma out of the body, the articulation with the maxilla, which creates both the inferior orbital rim and that maxillary buttress, they're actually part of the same suture. So in isolation, the zygoma looks like a tripod. But practically speaking, we don't get a fracture in that suture line. We get a fracture in the inferior orbital rim and in the zygomatico-maxillary buttress. And so there's actually four points of fracture there. And if you have a copy of Pasha, for instance, it'll talk about the Zing classification, where type A is isolated to one segment of the zygoma, um, and then it subcategorizes those whether or not it's the arch, the lateral orbital wall, or the inferior orbital rim. Type B are classic tetrapod fractures that involve all four of those processes, and then type C um, usually has a significant amount of comminution of that zygomatic bone. So in contrast, LaFort fractures, and by the way, I think of LaFort fractures in terms of a, almost like an elevator of midface mobility. These are usually from an anterior blow, they require a significant force. And so the bottom of the elevator is gonna be a little fort one. So when you do a maxillectomy or when a patient has a maxillary advancement, these are the same cuts that we would make. They're low cuts, they're just above the maxillary alveolus, involves going through the nasomaxillary buttress, the maxillary buttress, and then of course the pterygomaxillary buttress. And that's usually caused by low anterior to posterior force. A LaFort II, um, if you can picture this, is often called a pyramid fracture. The maxilla and nasal complex are separated from the facial skeleton, but they're held intact. That means that the fracture starts laterally, crosses the zygomatical maxillary buttress, and then ascends up into the orbit. So there's always an inferior orbital rim fracture, and then it crosses through the medial orbital wall. And typically, this is from a force that's directed superiorly against the maxilla or posteriorly along the Frankfurt horizontal line. A Lefort three fracture, so now we're at the top floor of our mid-face mobility elevator, is total craniofacial disassociation. And that's essentially when you get separation of the facial skeleton from the skull. It includes an NOE pattern fracture, and I think we cover those in a separate episode in greater depth. Um, these are high-velocity impact and often involve some sort of other skull base or significant sphenoid fracture. And so this is a straight line. It's drawn through the orbit. You get a ZF suture fracture in addition to that NOE pattern and the pterygoid fracture. In case I didn't specifically mention it, in order to have a Lafort fracture, you have to have a fracture that extends to the pterygoid plates in order for the midface to be totally mobile.
0: Got it. And with all that in mind, could you walk us through how a patient with a Lafort or zygomatic fracture would present?
1: So demographics, usually males, again, age 20 to 30, as with uh, most trauma, it's uncommon to have this in kids because the maxillary sinus isn't well pneumatized. And so that force is usually transmitted differently and their bones are more flexible. But as we mentioned, more likely lateral than medial. I mean, when you have those lateral blows, those patients will come in with a loss of malar prominence. They may have trismus, as we discussed from impingement on that temporalis muscle the coronoid process. Um, they may have a palpable step-off in the inferior orbital rim, and then you can have all the things associated with an orbital fracture, right? Diplopia, anophthalmus, hypoglopus, globe malposition. Additionally, a lot of these can involve mucosal surfaces in the inside of the nose, so they can present with epistaxis, and that might be minor mucosal trauma, or that can be from a concomitant septal fracture, or it could be actually from a laceration of the mucosa from a sharp bone at the piriform edge. A lot of these fractures also involve the inferior orbital foramen, which will cause cheek and tooth hyposthesia. For Lefort fractures, you know, that classic patient presentation is mid face retrusion with an anterior open bite, right? And that's from the pole of the lateral medial pterygoid muscles. And as that maxilla slides back, there's no buttress that exists in that sagittal plane that prevents the maxilla from telescoping back. And so it rocks up anteriorly and, and you have early contact posteriorly. Um, that's what really creates the open bite that's characteristic in the Lafort 1 and Lafort 2 fractures. In Lafort 3 fractures, if you ever see a picture of a patient that has a Lafort 3 fracture, you can actually see the entire midface lengthen while the midface projection still sort of falls back in. So they'll have decreased nasal projection, decreased malar projection, while the whole midface is longer. The most common type of uh, Lafort fracture is actually a Lafort II fracture, followed by a Lafort I and then Lafort III fractures, Um, although there's some regional variability in ports from various areas of the country.
0: So there's not much of a differential diagnosis for these patients, but these fractures are in some pretty high real estate regions of the face. What are some comorbid or complicating conditions you're looking for in these types of fractures?
1: Yeah. Well, and this kind of points again to the reason why we have to be systematic and do our complete top of the head to collarbone secondary survey, right? About a quarter of ZMOC fractures will have other associated injuries and all of this is periorbital, right? And so, so we have to be really careful about our periorbital examination. Patients can come in with lid swelling, but it's still really important to do a thorough ophthalmologic exam. So we need to assess binocular and monocular vision. Um, we need to make sure their pupil is round, there's no blood in the anterior chamber, And like any orbital wall fracture, I'm getting ophthalmology consults on all these folks just to make sure that they don't have some vitriol or retinal pathology that I can't see just on a naked eye examination that I could make worse by putting pressure on the globe. We want to be careful to look also for NOE fractures. So specifically, that means just look at the medial cantle angle. Even though these patients are swollen, it's really uncommon to lose the sharp angle of definition at the medial canthus just from swelling. So if you see a blunted medial canthal angle, that's a big red flag. Even on radiology examinations, sometimes depending on the type of medial canthal disruption, that may not be visible. So we have to catch that. Um, so again, just encouragement, put on gloves, do your full top of the head to the collarbone examination. The other one that we've already spoken about is this is really, really commonly involving the infraorbital nerve. And so we want to do a good job checking our sensation, both sensation of the cheek as well as the dental sensation. And then because the central nasal structures may be involved, we also want to make sure that there's not a septal fracture or septal hematoma, which if we decide to delay intervention on could cause a, a serious threat to the septal cartilage. Finally, we've mentioned a bit, you get the sense, you know, epistaxis is going to be a big part of this. Often in these patients, we have to do some intervention before we get very far into the examination, even leading up to nasal packing. But we we need to screen a couple of the arteries that run through the maxilla. And most of the time, if you get significant bleeding, it's just from mucosal injury. But every once in a while, you can actually have an injury to the sphenopalatine artery or even in a super rare circumstance to the carotid artery. And I can tell you actually a story about a young female who came in after an orthonathic surgery, a LaFort 1 osteotomy, uh, with this recurring massive nasal hemorrhage. And it turns out that you can get hemorrhage like that from a pseudoaneurysm. In her case, she didn't have a pseudoaneurysm. She had a lacerated sphenopalatine artery. But that's something that we sometimes have to endoscopically clip. And then finally, there's like the dental portion of the maxillary alveolus, right? So we need to screen for dental damage. That might mean that there's a sublux tooth, periodontal damage with loosening of the tooth, but it's still sort of in the socket or even luxation where the supporting structures of the tooth have damaged enough to allow it to loosen. And we want to know that before we intubate the patient and then also to help kind of plan our surgical approach to treat that. I should mention one more thing, and uh, I think we'll talk about imaging in just a moment, but... We also want to be a little bit wary of unilateral LaFort fractures, right? A unilateral LaFort fracture means that there has to be some sort of midline split to allow one side of the midface to mobilize so much. And so in those patients, I'm looking for specifically for a palatal fracture, right? A palatal fracture is easy to miss, but it'll make it difficult to get the occlusion stable if I don't address that during a surgical intervention.
0: All right. And What other imaging or lab studies would you be considering in a patient with these fracture patterns, and what specifically would you be looking for in these studies?
1: Yeah, a lot of times, by the time we see that patient, we've already gotten a CT face, but that's kind of what you need. That's the mainstay of imaging, right? A one-millimeter cut CT, which allows us to look at all three views, and we need to check all three views, right? Because that axial plane is going to show you the facial width and allow you to scroll through the pterygoid plates see how much space the coronoid has underneath the zygomatic arch. The coronal view is where we're going to be able to evaluate the nasal aperture and the orbital exoskeleton, the orbital volume. The sagittal planes, again, allow us to look at the midface projection and make sure that it's symmetric on both sides. This is another case where I'm a big fan of 3D reconstructions. They allow us to get a good snapshot, which nicely characterizes the degree of rotation for instance, in ZMOC fractures that we'll need to address interoperatively, and we can communicate effectively with the patient. And then I mentioned before, if a patient has significant epistaxis on presentation, then we may need to even think about doing a CT angio. And there's another indication, right? If you have a patient with a LaFort 3 fracture, a total craniofacial disassociation, that requires such a significant mechanism in a force transmission, that we probably need to consider getting a CTA in those patients as well.
0: And what are your indications for taking these patients back to the operating room?
1: In general, what we want to establish is return to normal form and function, right? And so think about the metrics that we use to evaluate that. Is their occlusion stable or do they have malocclusion? And this is often tricky because the sensation um, is almost always disturbed in these fracture patterns because of involvement of the infraorbital nerve or the pterygopalatine fossa. And the sensitivity of the periodontal ligament is what tells a patient whether or not they're having malocclusion. It can perceive a human hair between the teeth. Now, if that sensation is totally shot because of an injury, it's definitely gonna alter their, their sensation of occlusion. But objectively also, we can see whether or not they have trismus, whether or not there's impingement on the temporalis muscle or the coronoid process. Obviously, malocclusion can be influenced by a presence of a palatal fracture that needs to be stabilized. And then there's this form aspect, right? Is there a facial aesthetic change, malar flattening or facial widening or even shortening of the midface? And the bottom line, we'll repeat this over and over again, is if there's involvement of any of the vertical buttresses, we really have a low threshold to intervene operatively.
0: All right. And broadly speaking, what are some of the treatment options for these fractures?
1: So there's conservative management and there's open reduction internal fixation, right? And when we say conservative management, it doesn't mean that we're not intervening. Like there's the observation category. And for those patients, we're talking about patients that really have non-displaced or less than a millimeter of displacement, and their fractures are totally stable. They don't need any intervention. Uh, For those patients, pain is going to limit their activity, but remember that the maxilla and the vertical buttresses are transmitting the force of mastication up through the skull. So if there's any mobility to the maxilla, every time a patient tries to eat something, they're gonna risk displacing those fractures. And the tendency will be for the maxilla to contract vertically and leave them with an anterior open bite. So again, we have a low threshold to go in and plate those vertical buttresses. Or conservative may mean not observation, but that we're gonna do something under local anesthesia. And here we're talking about closed reduction. And when it comes to midfacial fractures, we're really only using this for isolated zygomatic arch fractures and maybe palatal fractures, right? And with those arch fractures, the technique that I'm referring to more commonly now is a suture reduction technique, which I hadn't used or one of my residents taught me about it, but essentially use a big 2-O or even O-proline suture. And under local anesthesia, you're passing a couple of those sutures deep to the fractured portion of the zygomatic arch. Then you put lateral traction on those sutures and you can pop that bone into place and you can even use an ultrasound to verify that it's reduced. You can stabilize that with a FOX eye shield or with an aquaplast splint. Similarly for isolated palatal fractures, if the teeth are stable, we can use them to manipulate, to reduce, and then to fixate the fracture, either using an Eric bar or by using dental brackets. Just as a reminder, if the teeth are at all mobile, we should not try to put a wire around them. Because as we tighten that wire, the teeth will pop right out. So in those cases, generally, I need to have our OMFS colleagues bond a bracket to the tooth and then place a dental wire um, to reestablish the maxillary arch. I have, in a pinch, twisted a 24-gauge wire and then tried to bond it to the teeth. Um, and you can have mixed success with that, really, if you don't have access to uh, one of your oral surgery professionals. Or I guess you can manufacture a poor man's palatal splint, either using an aquaplast splint or a curlic, like using a gunning splint. But again, um, those can sometimes be less a- ideal than the, than the elaborate splints that the OMFS service can make and attach to the stable dentition. So those are examples of, of closed reduction without internal fixation. But again, for the majority of patients, we're going to do some element of reduction with internal fixation.
0: So when you're considering operating on a patient with a, or a zygomatic fracture, what time frame are you usually thinking about for getting them back to the OR?
1: Operative intervention ideally occurs in the first 24 to 48 hours before their swelling is really significant or after it started to resolve in 10 to 14 days. It's really ideal if the swelling has resolved enough that we can visually align these bones, but uh, not so long that a fibrous union has started to form. And that usually happens in the 10 to 14 day window. Again, that's not super rigid. It's not a deal breaker because uh, we can use an osteotome and slide it into those fracture sites. But in the process, most of the time, you'll make the fracture a little bit bigger. And if there's really significant what I call facial smash, right, um, we'll sometimes go in and fix the exoskeleton first and, uh, and get the exoskeleton in place and then come back in a week or two for any more refined orbital floor orbital wall reconstruction. That way we can get the exoskeleton in the right place while things are still mobile.
0: Got it. That makes sense. So the treatment options for these different types of fractures, as you mentioned, can vary considerably. If you are going to the operating room, let's start with zygomatic arch fractures first. How would you approach those?
1: Yeah, and by the way, the AO surgery reference online, AO-CMF surgical reference, it covers all these options really well. It had some really helpful pictures on it, so I'd recommend using that if you're headed towards the operating room. But to answer your question, for zygomatic arch fractures, there's kind of two classically described approaches, right? The Keen, which is a transoral approach, or the Gillies, which is a transtemporal incision. I always had trouble remembering these when I was in residency. So just remember that the gillies incision is in the same place like the gills on a fish, right? It's out by the ear. Um, And that gillies incision, you go down to the temporalis muscle so that you're deep to the deep layer of the temporal fascia, protects the frontal branch of the facial nerve where it crosses the zygoma. And there's a couple of different ways to do that, but essentially you make a two centimeter beveled incision, one inch above and one inch anterior to the helical root carry your cut down to the muscle and that'll put you superior to the anterior branch of the superficial temporal artery and then just slide underneath that fascia down to the zygoma as a sidebar you know i've got this old laray surgical textbook that was published in the 1960s when they were still using wires to fixate all these facial fractures and they illustrate this gillies approach and then there's this little asterisk down there these cautions right and it says you know don't fulcrum off the skull and fracture it and so that's just a reminder to us that you have to pull pretty hard on this so for that reason, sometimes it's you have to use a more direct approach. And by that, what I'm really talking about is a percutaneous approach.
0: And what additional approaches would you be considering for a ZMOC fracture? Uh,
1: in contrast to a zygomatic arch, normally for a ZMOC fracture, at minimum, we're going to need to expose a couple of the fracture sites to look at them directly for adequate reduction. And then we also have to have enough exposure to be able to control the zygoma to actually achieve this reduction. So commonly speaking, you're going to use a gingival buccal sulcus incision and at least one or two periorbital approaches. The two periorbital approaches I most commonly use are a lateral bleph incision that takes me down to the zygomatico frontal suture and an inferior fornix incision which trans approach, which takes me down to the inferior orbital rim. That lateral bleph incision, it hides super well. It's a horizontal incision, and then you can cut vertically straight down to the ZF suture. You know, we used to advocate for making an incision in the brow, but I'll tell you that that's almost always visible, and so we just don't advocate for that anymore. For that trans incision, remember that the more medial you need to go along the inferior orbital rim, the more lateral release that you need. And by that, I mean that if the fracture is medial to the infraorbital foramen, you should be thinking about or prepared to cut the canthus, right? And cutting the canthus is not rocket science. I assure you that you can sew it nicely back together again. But the flip side is that I've tried transconjunctival approaches to the inferior orbital rim and ended up putting enough traction on the lower lid in order to achieve perpendicular exposure for screw placement that I've torn it. And when you tear the lower lid, the weakest point is actually at the inferior canalicular system. So the repair for that often involves a Monoco stent or a Jones tube and an oculoplastics console. The bottom line is you want to avoid that if you can. So with that combination of incisions with transoral and periorbital incisions, there are a few different ways that we can control the rotation of the zygoma while generating the kind of force that we need to reduce it. Sometimes you can just use a coker clamp on the lateral orbital rim and grip that one point, then use a boy's elevator, a Gillies elevator hooked underneath the zygomatic arch, the transoral incision. But even with these two points, it can be difficult to both generate enough force and control the rotation. So another option that we talk about is a carroll Girard screw, right? That's a long screw that you place in the body of the zygoma. However, again, unless we've done an extended canthotomy cantholysis and really separated that lower eyelid, it can be difficult to actually get that screw in place um, unless you do a percutaneous approach. And there's been a couple of times that I've actually broken off a carroll Girard screw trying to move that bone. So there's this alternative approach that I first learned in fellowship. I was taught by Chris Mo um, while I was at Harborview and and it's to use this bone hook. Um, And the bone hook is actually an orthopedic bone hook that uh, now I call the BABH, standing for the big arse bone hook. You make this little tiny skin incision just below the junction of the horizontal zygomatic arch and the vertical zygomatic maxillary buttress. And you make that incision parallel to the relaxed skin tension line, essentially in a smile line and you go only through the skin about the width of the 15 blade. Then you engage this BABH so that it's pointing across the face. The handle's going across the face to the contralateral eye. And as you rotate it up into a vertical position, you'll catch the body of the zygoma right at this crotch where that zygomatic bone is the strongest, which is what you need. So while I've got the BABH in one hand, I've got my non-dominant hand actually kind of pushing the head down and bracing this fragment So as i pull it anteriorly i don't over reduce it when it starts to mobilize that technique actually gives me enough force to make the anterior pole that i need to disimpact the zygoma as well as gives me a vector for superior rotation and medial rotation which i'm going to need to reduce those fractures and as i'm doing all this of course i'm looking through all these little access points to make sure that the fractures are reducing in all those locations then once everything is lined up I'll slide down the medial surface of the lateral orbital wall and check the zygomaticosphenoid sphenoid suture alignment. This is a super, super helpful visualization. This confirms that the rotation of the zygoma is gonna be correct for me. Now you can imagine that the amount of force that you're putting on the exoskeleton is significant, right? And so sometimes as you're disimpacting the ZMOC, the orbital floor and even the lateral orbital wall can totally unzip. So you can take a patient that has what looks like a non-operative floor fracture and you may make it operative because we increase the orbital volume by disimpacting the zygoma. And there's a debate about, you know, when you should intervene, whether you should wait and see if the patient is going to become symptomatic from that change in orbital volume. But I would just say at a minimum, if the patient before the surgery has any element of enophthalmos or hypoglobus, and we haven't reduced that ZMOC, we should be ready probably to do that orbital floor recon at the time of our surgery.
0: Great. And so once you have put in the gargantuan effort to achieve reduction, how many points of fixation do you actually need?
1: So this is debatable too, right? So we've confirmed that reduction on the ZS alignment and we've got the zygomatical frontal suture exposed right there. There are some people that say you can just put a single mini plate on that ZF suture. That single point of fixation, that's probably not the standard of care. We usually aim for getting at least two to three points of fixation. The easiest ones to access are the zygomaticofrontal suture and the zygomatico-maxillary buttress. So as long as you've got the exposure in those two locations, I'm putting mini plates on both of those spots. And now I've also got the inferior orbital rim exposed. So as long as I'm mindful of the tension that I'm placing on that lower eyelid, it's a really low morbidity process to put one additional mini plate on that inferior orbital
0: rim. Okay. And in a similar vein, when you're approaching a Lafort fracture, how would your surgical approach be different?
1: Yeah. So that's a great question, right? Because there's a couple of key differences. And the first one is our airway plan. For almost all these fractures, we're going to need to assess not only the nasal passage, but more importantly, even the occlusion. And so my experience has been that sometimes there's enough room in the retromolar trigone to accommodate an oral endotracheal tube. And I know this because usually with their mouth closed, I can slide my finger in the retromolar trigone around the maxilla with their mouth closed, right? So if that's the case, I can use an oral tracheal intubation. If I have any concern about that, then we can move to a nasotracheal intubation. Again, most of the time here, even though we have some work to do in the nose, we can work around a nasal tracheal tube. Alternatively, if the patient has a panfacial fracture, or I'm going to need to really do a significant amount of mobilization, or they have a bad skull base injury or I'm concerned for carotid dissection, then I'll just have them orally tracheally intubated and I'll convert that to a submental intubation or a temporary tracheostomy tube. The actual surgical approaches in terms of incisions are actually uh, fairly similar though. They're extended, right? You're often going to make a bilateral gingival buccal sulcus incision or extend your transconjunctival incision both laterally and or medially, depending on the exposure that you need. But at minimum, we're going to need intraoral exposure and periorbital exposure, likely through a trans or maybe even a subciliary approach. Here again, the, the critical step of the entire surgery is to mobilize the midface and reestablish occlusion and orbital volume and make sure our reduction is correct. Um, and so for the mobilization, in this case, there are these big disimpaction forceps, right, called the row disimpaction forceps. And they look a little bit like this big medieval torture instrument, there's a curve, um, There's the handles on one curve to the left and the handles on the other curve to the right. There's this large notch that goes around the teeth and articulates with the maxilla and then a flat side of these forceps that goes in the nasal passage. So you have to put both of those in. And again, you can do this around, most of the time, around an endotracheal tube that's in the nose, but we're gonna grab the left and the right side of the maxilla. And then with the head stabilized, we're gonna need to disimpact the maxilla down and anteriorly. I'll just warn you, as you imagine, you know there's big blood vessels flowing right next to where we're going to be moving the maxilla and it's possible for us to make patients bleed in this process. but we have to be able to mobilize it down in the anterior. So again, the other big difference is now that the maxilla is mobilized in all these Lafort fractures, we're going to need to re-establish the occlusion. So once we move it, we're going to lock them into occlusion. We can either use IMF screws or interdental fixation, or Eric archbars to lock the mandible down to the maxilla. And then when we reduce the rest of the fractures, we're gonna use the maxilla and the mandible and move them as one unit until we get all those fractures perfectly aligned. The other big difference, and I would just say, I know we're, we're going to talk about NOE fractures in a different podcast, but we need to be wary of these, um, especially when we have a LaFort 2 or Lafort Laforte 3 fracture, because again, this is the time to address those and we want to address them while we have this surgical exposure. I should mention also that sometimes these mid-phase fractures can be more common than just a ZMOC fractures, say. And if there's more than four to five millimeters of gaposis on a horizontal bar or a vertical buttress, and I'm really confident that my reduction is good, then I'm going to need to use some bone grafts in here. And so for panfacial fractures or a significant combination associated with LaFort fractures, I'll consent all these patients to use a parietal bone graft um, unless they have a contraindication. And in general, you know, the midface is well enough vascularized that I can fixate a monocortical bone graft and it'll revascularize pretty well. I'll also share a couple of other tips, and most of these are from my past failures, but whenever I'm doing a significant reduction of the mid-face exoskeleton or orbital reconstruction, I try to have some verification of accuracy, and that might mean either I'm using intraoperative navigation, or I'm using OARM intraoperative CT scan, because there's good data to show that about 30% of the time we change hardware position based on an intraoperative CT or navigation. And it also has shown to save patients from revision surgeries. So don't forget also, after your plates are on and you're satisfied with the hardware location, there's still the nose to deal with, right? Often there's nasal bone or septal fractures or tooth fractures that we need to deal with. And so sometimes I'll just make a checklist up on the board because it's easier than you think to forget about some of these things. After I've done work around the orbit, I always want to check the pupil and do forced ductions. To facilitate a pupil check i'll either have a corneal protector in or i'll do on the contralateral side i'll just do a temporary tarsorophy suture at the lateral limbus and finally when you're closing up make sure you close periosteum over your hardware and then use a big pds or long-lasting suture to re-suspend the malar fat pad and anchor it back to something that's rigid either orbital rim plate or periosteum But that's really important, especially when we have a big swinging lid exposure and we've released all the suspensory midface ligaments to achieve our open reduction internal fixation.
0: Great. So now that we've reviewed the treatment arm of this, what kind of post-operative care, such as antibiotics or food or activity restrictions, would you typically provide for these patients?
1: most of the time we're not necessarily leaving these patients in mmf but I will tell them hey you know stick to a soft no chew diet at least for a couple of weeks and then I've got them doing you know intraoral wound care essentially doing rinses and nasal irrigations in wounds that aren't grossly contaminated there's no really convincing data to use antibiotics beyond the immediate post operative period so normally practically speaking you know I'm using them while the patient is inpatient and hooked up to an iv But, you know, after about 48 or max 72 hours, or they discharge from the hospital, whichever is less, I'll shut those off. One caveat again is that for some dental injuries, actually the recommendations are to use longer antibiotic coverage. And so those are cases where I will send patients out on oral antibiotics. By definition, all ZMOC and LaFort fractures are going to involve the sinus passage. And so I always counsel patients about sinus precautions, no nose blowing, sneeze with the mouth open to prevent subcutaneous emphysema.
0: And moving on to your outcomes or expectations for these patients, what are your expectations for surgical correction of Lafort and zygomatic fractures and what defines for you a good outcome?
1: So I think we usually know in the operating room whether or not we've gotten a perfect reduction. And that usually means that we've resolved trismus, that the occlusion is good, and, and that the facial width and height are reestablished. Now, for the patient to perceive that, depending on their severity of fracture, they may be swollen for weeks, right? And so we may be seeing them back for weeks at a time and sort of reassuring them, hey, you know what? The exoskeleton fixation is good here. When the swelling resolves, you're, you're going to do well. And ultimately, I guess the judgment about whether or not we've been successful or, or had a good outcome is going to be based on whether or not the patient is pleased with their return to form and function.
0: Makes sense. So what are the main complications that you're keeping in mind or trying to avoid when treating these fractures?
1: Well, I've shared with you a few of my pearls from prior surgical mistakes, but, you know, we have to remember, so we got to counsel these patients that anytime there's a fracture particularly around the teeth or nasal mucosa, there's the risk of infection. And that infection can then exacerbate bone loss or hardware loosening. Patients can have non-union or plate exposure, all of those things. Sometimes it's difficult to separate, You know, was that our surgical approach that's, for instance, causing their diplopia or their epifera, or was it actually the injury itself, the fracture? But statistically, when we look at these, the most common surgical complications are usually actually secondary to inadequate reduction. That might mean that the patient has persistent trismus from zygomatic arch impaction or incomplete reduction of the zygomatic rotation. It may mean they have continued facial asymmetry. We didn't reestablish the facial width or height. It could mean that the orbital volume reconstruction was inaccurate and they have an or hypoglobus leading to diplopia. Again, here, you know, sometimes just with periorbital trauma, you can have intraconal fat loss, which changes the orbital volume as well. When we speak about particularly fractures involving the medial orbital wall and potentially NOE, you know, there's the risk of prolonged telecanthus, or if we don't adequately reduce the malocclusion, they can have persistent malocclusion anterior open bite. Similarly, if we don't address the nasal passages completely, poor nasal breathing can be another problem. So failures in reduction is probably the most common one. And secondary to that, there's failures in the approach or fixation, right? Nerve damage, poor healing, causing visible scarring or eyelid retraction, damage to the eyelid or or lacrimal system, as we mentioned. It's actually easier than we think to put a screw in the lacrimal system, and that can be symptomatic sometimes. And then you know midface ptosis, again, we try to avoid that by adequately resuspending the midface, but it can descend over time some.
0: And as a follow-up question, how do you typically treat these complications if they do occur?
1: Well, of course, we have to address the underlying cause, right? So if it's underlying infection or malnutrition that's causing poor healing, we have to address that. Specifically when it comes to hardware, you know, sometimes plate removal may be necessary, and that can either be because it's exposed intraorally or it's exposed through the conjunctiva, causing eyelid retraction. But generally speaking, these plates are so small that if we have good periosteal coverage and a watertight closure, the risk of long-term exposure is, is pretty low. For non-union, there are times when you have to re-osteotomize people and use bone grafting or even free flap reconstruction and severe combination, but those are the minority of patients. And for sensory nerve injuries, you know, we generally expect some level of spontaneous recovery, but it it may take weeks to months to achieve that.
0: And how frequently do you typically follow up with these patients postoperatively?
1: Yeah. If I do occlusion or orbital reconstruction work, I'm usually seeing them every couple of weeks for um, at least a month or two, often longer.
0: Okay. To briefly summarize, today we covered Lafort and zygomatic maxillary midface fractures, which can involve all the large bones of the skull and the seven bones of the orbit, as well as multiple facial buttresses. We reviewed Lafort classifications into Lafort 1 through 3 and the Zing classification, which breaks zygomatic fractures down into types A through C. Patients with LeFort fractures classically present with mid-face retrusion and malocclusion with an anterior open bite and may have mid-face mobility or asymmetric fracture patterns, but can also have pseudoaneurysm, dental damage, and palatal split fractures. Patients with zygomatic fractures often present with loss of malar prominence or trismus, but can also have periorbital ecchymosis or edema, cheek numbness, diplopia, hypoglobus, enophthalmos, or epistaxis that can require nasal packing. Notably, these patients often have multiple concomitant facial fractures, like nasal, orbital, or NOE fractures, because of the high energy involved in these injury patterns. CT facial is the mainstay of diagnosis with these patients, though so you should consider CT angiography if the patient has a LaFort III fracture based on the mechanism, or if the patient is experiencing delayed intermittent epistaxis concerning for pseudoaneurysm. These fractures usually require open fixation but can include more conservative management including closed reduction and splinting or arch bar fixation. Indications to operate include facial aesthetic change or functional impairment usually with malocclusion, trismus, vision changes, palatal fracture, and sometimes with significant involvement of a facial buttress. Operative fixation ideally should be performed within 24 to 48 hours, but can be safely performed before 10 to 14 days to prevent scarring, fibrotic changes, and bony resorption from beginning. Generally, treating these operatively includes initial reduction of fractures with further stabilization using mini plates, intramaxillary fixation, or bone grafts for significant bone loss. Surgical approaches for ZMC fractures include the named Gillies approach through the temporal scalp and intraoral keen approach, as well as options for gingivobuccal sulcus, coronal, upper or lower bleph, and less commonly lateral brow incisions for additional exposure, always being mindful of not damaging surrounding structures while generating enough force to achieve adequate reduction. Lafort fractures are usually surgically approached similarly involve reducing the fracture, placing the patient in maxillomandibular fixation, and then stabilizing buttresses, usually focused on the nasomaxillary and inferior orbital rim buttresses and the ZM or ZF articulations. Postoperatively, patients should be put on a soft, no-chew diet for a few weeks, sinus precautions, and wound care with nasal irrigation and oral rinses, and can also be started on post-op antibiotics if they have dental injury. The main complications from ZMC and LaFort fracture operative repair are secondary to incomplete reduction, and include continued or new trismus, facial asymmetry, palpable or visible plates, malunion or nonunion, and impaired nasal breathing. Other complications can include forehead and cheek hypesthesia from injury to the supraorbital and infraorbital nerves, dental injury, midface ptosis, or eyelid or lacrimal injury. Thinner or absorbable plates are sometimes used to avoid plate extrusion or visibility, but otherwise treating the underlying condition resulting in the complication, such as infection or inappropriate activity, and possible surgical revision are the mainstays of treatment for complications. Dr. Bevins, did you have anything you'd like to add?
1: No, that was a really nice summary.
0: Great. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. As usual, we'll end with a couple of review questions. Like always, I'll ask the question, pause for a few moments to allow you to think of the answer, or pause the podcast, and then I'll give the answer. Starting off, describe the LaFort classifications. A lafort one fracture consists of a horizontal fracture through the maxilla and nasal septum and the lateral nasal walls, lateral maxillary sinus, and extends into the tergomaxillary junction. A Lafort II fracture is a pyramidal fracture involving the nasofrontal sutures, medial and inferior orbital walls, and zygomatic maxillary suture, as well as the lateral maxillary sinus and tergomaxillary junction, like in a Lafort I. A Lafort III fracture results in craniofacial disjunction involving the frontal process of the maxilla, lacrimal bones, ethmoid sinus, orbital floor and inferior orbital fissure, ZF suture, and zygomatic arch, in addition to the nasal frontal suture and pterygoid plates from a LaFort tube. What is the characteristic deformity associated with midface fractures? The characteristic deformity associated with midface fractures are an anterior open bite and midface retrusion. This is from unopposed posterior and inferior traction on the mobile maxillary fragment by the medial and lateral pterygoid muscles. And finally, what approaches would be most appropriate for an isolated, simple, or non comminuted zygomatic arch fracture? A gillies approach through a temporal incision or a keen approach through a transoral incision would be most appropriate for an isolated, simple, zygomatic arch fracture.